regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-form conversations with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Michelle Shepard. Michelle has been working in data engineering for about 15 years. Originally from France, he came to the US in 2011 to join a small startup named Libram. As the company grew, he became the head of integration and data engineering, where team built and scaled over a thousand data ingestion and distribution connectors to replicate hundreds of terabytes worth of data every day. After Libram's acquisition and later IPO, he wanted to go back to an early stage startup. So he joined RayOS as director of engineering, again, deep in data engineering. While there, he realized that companies were always trying to solve the same problem over and over again. This problem should be solved once and for all. This is when he decided to start a new company and Airbud was born. So Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. So yeah, let's start our conversation with uh, a bit about your educational background. So that you did a master degree in uh, computer science at uh, EPITA, just School of Engineering and Computer Science back in France. And this is probably ranked among the top engineering school in France. How was your overall experience there? And what were some of your favorite CS courses that you took? Yeah, so in France, the way engineering school are structured is like you have two years of very intensive scientific studies with a lot of math, physics, etc., etc., And then you have three years of applied CS where you dive into programming and uh, you dive into architecture and all the fundamentals for, for CS. I would say the first two years were basically the continuation of high school for me, but the last three years were just amazing. It was a way to really go on my passion for computer science, go very deep into like how do you do you build a, a Unix kernel, how you do build a shell, very applied. And at the same time, with a lot of classes that teach you how to build a company, how to manage a team, how to basically become a leader in CS. I would say it was a bit competitive because every single project was groups of people. There was this global ranking. So I think it was good competition. Yeah, I had a lot of fun there. My favorite courses, I would say, I really love the one about databases. I think it went through the both the part about how do you design data? How do you manage data? But also the nitty gritty details of what it is to build a database. How do you log? How do you for guarantee with your database engine? And from this class, I've I think that's the one I remember the most thing about. Yeah, thanks for sharing that experience. During your master program, you also had some uh, real-world experience. In particular, you spent about a year interning at uh, Siemens Corporate Research as an R&D engineer. What were some of the internship projects that you work on there? That was my first experience in the U.S. It was the Siemens Corporate Research Center in Princeton. And 
I was focusing on medical imaging. So lots of data because it, I was working with brain scans. And the idea was about how do you segment, how do you identify parts of the brain so that you can help surgeons and doctors to make better decisions. So it was interesting because it was both like very technical, very research, but at the same time, it had like real life application. And we were talking with doctors to validate and benchmark the algorithm that we're using to segment the brain. And I was also with some friends from Epita. So we, it was both work, but also discovering the US at that time. I see. Yeah. So I suppose that this is for your first time in the US when you got your degree in France. Like what are some of the major differences in terms of technical expertise and even working culture that you observe? Because it was my first working experience, I didn't see so much difference at the time because I didn't know what it was to work in France. But I really liked how independent I was in doing these research projects. They were also very research-oriented, so I had to just take on papers and see how I could implement all the, the different models that were there and how do you manage the data behind the scene, but to benchmark and to validate that your algorithm are properly implemented. But I would say like the freedom that I had was great. I think I would recommend doing a, a research <laughs> job at some point because it really helps you go very deep into one particular topic and see and, and make it something that can be a, like deliver a product at the end. Yeah, I see. So after you finished your master's degree, you spend the next three years in Paris working as a software engineer at two big financial organizations, FactSet Research System and Murex. So can you comment briefly on this career phase of jobs? And furthermore, like what are some of the unique challenges of building system to handle financial data? I really started with data when I was at Siemens and FactSet was really my first job. And this one was very geared toward data. So FactSet has these many databases that are specialized for certain dimension of finance. And I was working with the estimate database. So gathering all the analyst estimates from like quarterly results of companies. And this data is just all over the place. It's It comes in XML files, it comes in PDF, it comes on email. So it was really about how do you bring all this data? How do you collect it? And then how do you make it queryable by traders and finance people? That was really my first experience to what it is to build data pipeline and what it is to make data available to the end user. In terms of the challenges, obviously, because there were some uh, more like regulatory challenges there, because since we were able to gather all this data, we like FactSet, for example, has some early signal that the market might not have already. So you have to really partition how the data is getting collected so that there is no risk for insider work to be done and make sure that the data happens and is available at the same time for everyone. And there are a lot of permissioning around data. Not everybody is allowed to have access to some of the data. So how do you properly tag each one of these figures to make sure that only the right people can access to it? So this is a challenge is like really focused on data access permission, right? And uh, yeah. regulatory concern, data governance in general. Yeah, thanks for sharing your experience working in financial organization. In 2011, you moved to San Francisco to work as a senior software engineer at Raplib, which is a small marketing SaaS startup. How did this opportunity come about and what was some of your core responsibility at Raplib? 
after my internship at Siemens, they basically offered me a position, but for immigration, H1B, I think a lot of people can relate to that. I didn't get it that year. So I went back to Paris and that's when I found Faxet and Murex. But in 2011, I was at that moment in my life where I needed to make a decision whether I wanted to stay in France or really go back to the US. And at that point, I reached out to friends from college that I was very close to. We did most of our project together and I asked them, okay, what are you guys doing in San Francisco? <laughs> and a very good friend of mine was at this company called Rapleaf. So I talked to him. Yeah, I really liked the, the idea. It was, it was very targeted into like the domain that I like, which is data management, exposing data to other people. So I just reached out to them and that's how I found it. Now, it went very fast. I think I got in touch with them in like May. In June, I was on a plane to do my uh, on-site interviews. It was tough because I had like one day, then I had like six hours of interview. The last interview was just a disaster. My brain shut down because of the time difference. But it was a great experience. And I think that's something I'm trying to replicate on how to conduct interview. Among like the core responsibility that I had when I started there. So I was a, a senior software engineer there and I never really worked on the Rapleaf product per se, because at that time, internally, there were already that spin-off between Rapleaf and Liveram. And I focused most of my time actually on the Liveram product. Yeah, it was basically about setting up all the data integration pipeline. Like how do we get data from customers and how do we fit that data into all the MarTech and AdTech ecosystem? Because it's a very fragmented market. And at that point, LiveRamp was really this pipe between customer data and how you can actually activate that data. So that was my core responsibility, the integrations and the data management. So Gracie, what technologies did that Rapid use for the data integration pipeline at that time? It was in 2011. So we were very big on Hadoop at the time. And it was mostly Java, Ruby, Ruby on Rails. We were using this library back in the day on, on top of Hadoop called Cascading, which mm -hmm. is a, a way of expressing with code how data flows, what kind of transformation you need to make. And it takes care of speeding that up into map and reduces task. Yeah, sure. Rapid was actually acquired by Tower Data, I guess in, in summer 2012. And uh, after that acquisition, you start a new role with LiveRam, which is essentially spun off from uh, Rapleaf. Initially, you start out as a, as a data engineering role and later as a tech lead. And based on my research, the profile, I think some of the projects that I work on at LiveRam include things like uh, building out the infrastructure to collect browsers, ID syncs, and identity matches, designing high-performance pipeline to process, analyze marketing data, and even developing an internal self-service data analysis pipeline to get insights on the identity graph quality. Can you just kind of provide a couple of, you know, like anecdotes on some of the projects that had, you know, the highest impact on LiveRamp business KPIs? When I was at LiveRamp, I was leading a team called Distribution. And the goal for, of that team was to deliver data as quickly as possible. And I think that the, the North Star, and I think every team should have this North Star of, what is my purpose? And the purpose of this team was we should never be the bottleneck. So if there is a bottleneck, it should be one of LiveRamp partner. And at that point, we had to build the infrastructure and the data infrastructure in a way that can just fire hose all that data to these partners and adapting based on how quickly they can ingest that data. 
So for the identity graph, a lot of the analysis were ad hoc analysis, where it was basically a product person or a business person asking for engineering time to actually extract insights from the identity graph to understand how it behaves, et cetera, et cetera. So it was very costly in terms of engineering time to do this analysis. And the problem is when you have that much friction, what happens is you just stay at the surface of your questions. Because whenever you have one question for that kind of problem is once you have the answer, it leads to 10 other questions. And because it's so costly in terms of time, in general, you, you stay at the surface and you don't go deeper. And one thing that, and my team was actually doing a lot of that because not only were we doing like all the distribution of the data, but we are managing all these links that were coming in from, uh, from devices. And so what we did is we actually set up the first modern data stack, which is basically what we do with Airbyte today on how can we enable roles that are not engineers or that are less technical to actually access data and get insights from it. And back in the days, there was no snowflakes, there was no BigQuery. So we were using Redshift mm -hmm. and we basically set up the whole thing. And at that moment, when we started to have Redshift and we had the relevant data into Redshift, you had like so many PMs that were just playing with it or analysts that were playing with it. I think the first project we saved like 500k a month of expense, like paying publisher and things like that. So it was really about optimizing and understanding if there were like issues with how we were matching devices together. But it didn't have to be engineers who had to do that job. It could be data analysts or data scientists. So that had a, a huge impact on how we were thinking about our publisher network and how we were thinking about how to pay them and how to leverage them and detect if there were any misbehaving publisher. Yeah, I see. So you mentioned Redshift were the tech stack of LiveRAM back then heavily rely on most of the AWS offerings. We had a data center as well, actually, and we also had the AWS. So we're just some of the new infrastructure was being built on AWS. The old one remained on our data center. But you know what's funny with that project is you must be familiar with dbt but internally we built something similar to dbt <laughs> to actually enable analysts and data scientists to consume the data that we're producing just never did it open source <laughs> yeah sure that's very interesting so so what you mentioned is like you, you build all these kind of tooling uh, data modeling transformation pipeline in-house right so definitely i can imagine it takes a lot of time so i'm just uh, curious like how long did it take you know uh, for your team from the conceptualizing that idea to actually, you know, the building of version 0.1 of that pipeline internally. Yeah, just to get a drop estimate to get, get a study yeah. how much time it took to build in-house. So I think it was an ongoing development, but at that time when we started that project, I think it took us maybe one quarter, like three months to get the first MVP of the product and to train one or two PMs how to use Redshift. And the thing is Redshift is a big beast. It's when you start to have like too many users, it's very hard to manage. So we're also learning about Redshift. Something that you should never underestimate when you do that kind of project is, okay, what is going to be the maintenance cost? And you're just going to learn from experience. Redshift is complex for that. And yeah, I think after one quarter, after that, it was just every quarter, we would have one or two projects uh, dedicated to maintaining and improving the pipeline and the data stack there. Yeah. So it takes time. It is expensive, but in the end, because you can enable new people to make this analysis, it's analysis that engineers don't have to do anymore or 
they can do, but it's faster and you get to resolve faster. So you're saving time on that front. But yeah, you have to maintain something on the other end. Kind of demonstrating that quick wins, right? Yeah. But yeah. being an analyst, so that getting that stakeholder buy-in is very important. Yeah. So yeah, in the latter part of your tenure with LiveRAM, you became the head of data integration and in particular responsible for fostering a strong culture of innovation and expanding the engineering organization significantly. What were some of the valuable leadership and hiring lessons that you have absorbed during this period? I think it's twofold. On one hand, the way you hire people informs how you're going to manage people internally. And within for engineering at Liverpool, we're very picky on the engineers that we hired. And the thing is, you need to define what are the values of your engineering team at that point. And at LiveRamp, one was you have to be a very good communicator. You need to be able to explain to non-engineers. You need to be able to explain to engineers and in a way that is understandable. What we, we had was also a lot of emphasis on attention to details. It's generally easy to write a piece of code without really thinking about the impacts of that piece of code. And so that's something that we are looking for in all the candidates. How do you think about how this piece of code is going to be used? What kind of input is going to get? Like, how is it going to evolve with time? And how do you make sure that when you write it, you think of all of that? So, because if you've hired people that have these traits, then suddenly these are people that you don't need to really manage. You need to coach them, but you don't need to be behind their back all the time. You can really trust them to really do what they say they're going to do and to just own how they're going to do it and communicate with the right people. And you don't have to be behind them all the time. And I think trusting and empowering people is the most important thing, especially in engineering, because engineering is a bit of creativity. So you want to make sure that you give the freedom to people to experiment and to really own the shape of the project. But for that, you need to also bring the candidate that can do it. Not everybody can do that. And as a manager, I would say the most important thing is when you have a team like that, try to stay away from giving away solutions, but always give the right context, whether it's business context around the project, whether it's internal context about the project, and let people just understand that context and be aligned with the context. Because at that point, they will understand what needs to happen behind the scene to make it work. I think that's the most important thing for fostering strong innovation is you need to give freedom to people. But for that, you need to hire people that can do something with that freedom. That part you mentioned about finding candidates who just not just write code, but a bit, but also like we sort of get the benefits of the code in mind, right? Just curious, like how do you find these candidates? Maybe like what kind of, even what kind of interview question that you ask for just to identify these traits? Because there seems to be kind of latent traits. It's hard to come out on, on a piece of paper, right? Yeah. So actually a lot of the thing I've learned while I was at Lamar is something I we also do at, at Airbyte is once you've identified your pillars of what matter in your engineering culture and your, or your, just your team in general, make sure that you get an answer and a read for each one of these pillars. And you should never get out of the interview without having an opinion, like That's the worst, means you haven't done your interview correctly. But for us, I think for me, when I interview people, I try to give just a high-level context. Because what I want to see from a candidate, whether it's a junior candidate or senior candidate, it's the ability to take 
a broad question and ask me questions. And I just want people to ask me questions about my question. Like, okay, am I going to be receiving that kind of input? Am I going to receiving this? What should I do with that edge case? For me, like generally a red flag is someone, I ask a question and they just dive into the code without saying anything, without asking for any subsequent question. This is generally a big red flag because it means that these are generally people that don't take a step back before diving into something. And they might just go in the wrong direction because of that. So obviously I guide people during interviews, but they need to lead how they resolve the question at that point. I'm not leading how they solve. Yeah. That's a, a way of testing for independence, autonomy, and the ability to work and communicate with other people. Perfect. Yeah, we would definitely talk about like hiring at Ava later on in the shop. But uh, before that, let's go back into your career. So after about five and a half years at Laram, I went to the company when, uh, when IPO, you became a founding member of Data Engineering at RyOS, which provides a data and API platform for autonomous companies and transportation network companies to create and manage their own ride hailing networks. According to my research, the Rye OS Rye Hill platform includes four separate layers, an open source application layer, the Rye Hilding API layer, the Fleet Planner API layer, and the Routing API layer. So could you mind just kind of unpacking how these layers work together? And furthermore, like what are some of the unique issues and challenges of being API service for Rye Hailing networks? When thinking about Rye Hail, you have like the backend and you have the front end. So the front end is basically a app that you have on your phone. And This one is very dependent on the service that you're building and you might need some branding in it. You might want to do some tweaks to the UI. So that was the part that was open source. It's like all the SDKs for Android and for iOS so that people can just take it, put that into their apps and it works. And if they need to tweak it, they can. Now, the routing API was basically the foundational piece of RideOS which is how do you go from point A to point B? And because we're also focusing on self-driving cars, we had to take into account what we call constraints. So roads or streets where cars cannot go or maneuver that that cars cannot do. And so the routing engine that we're building was taking that into account. In addition to ingesting real-time data about traffic, about constraints, about events on the streets so that you can properly route the car and make sure that you fulfill like all the requirements of that car. Because if it's a self-driving car and you tell that self-driving car to do a U-turn on the street and it cannot, then your car is stuck in the middle of the, of the road. That was like the routing piece. Now, the fleet planner was more around how do you manage a fleet? So instead of just like route is more like one car management, fleet is multiple car management. And how do you make sure that you put the cars in the right way, in the right place, so that if there is demand on, on that area, then you can fulfill that demand faster. It was about like, how do you dispatch the cars? So seeing which car is the most appropriate to pick up a passenger, to pick up food, or to do a specific task. And then the ride hailing API was really about the uh, ride hail use case, which is you manage users, you manage schedule, but the ride hailing API was basically using the fleet planner behind the scene and was also using routing behind the scene. You know, when you do ride hail and you do it at scale, every optimization is very important because it's a low margin business because you have to pay drivers. So every sense that you can get with volume 
is going to bring your revenue because you need to take first the chunk of the driver and then it's your it's your revenue so you want to increase like the amount of like that particular piece of the course price and yeah so for that you need to make sure that you're dispatching the right car to the right person and it was really a lot about optimization and getting to this like percentages gain that at scale make your network and network of cars super efficient. So for that, you need data. And that's what I was doing. I was really integrating the data, integrating into the routing engine to make sure that the routing engine is, and, and the fleet planner, and make sure that we make the fastest decision there. Uh, thanks for sharing that, kind of unpacking these different layers. I imagine like all these four layers are interoperable, right? Like they connect with each other. Yeah. Yep, they do. They do. I checked the, the WireDRS websites uh, recently and yeah, they've made a, a ton of progress on, on the APIs. Yeah. And, and you mentioned that a critical piece of optimization by working in right hand platform and just out of curiosity, like what are some of the tools and technologies again that you use for the integration with the engineering at iOS? Everything was in Java. We had like a monolithic project, which was great because we wanted to iterate quickly and you don't have to juggle with like multiple projects and you know that you always have a snapshot of a working code base every time. We were using Kubernetes a lot because for that particular service, we needed to scale up and down based on the demand. Like if you have a thousand car on the street, you need to make sure you can accommodate like the computation for this thousand of car. If you have 10,000 users, I mean, you need to be able to accommodate that. But then suddenly in the night, you have like five users. So you don't want to be paying for like large infrastructure when you, do, you don't have usage. So we're using Kubernetes for that, auto-scaling clusters and also auto-scaling services. It was microservices at that point. Uh, we're using gRPC, protobuf for data serialization, Python as well. And we're on GCP. Okay. Yeah. Thanks a lot for kind of sharing that experience well. You know, obviously throughout your career experience, you know, working at you know, RapLib and then LiveRAM and then at as you need deep into data engineering and reading public from, from the head up. And I suppose I would love to hear about your story behind creation of Airby. So since January 2020, you have been the co-founder and CEO of Airby, whose mission is to make data integration pipelines a commodity. In fact, while doing the research on the, the founding of the company, I also came across the pivot that happened during your time at YC. So can you just kind of share the story behind the founding of the company as well as that pivot that happened that you had to make? I basically left RideOS in July 2019. And what I did until January was really, I mean, I was talking with as many people as I could for the six months. And I was also looking for a great co-founder. Like John is a great co-founder. Uh, we brainstormed a ton of ideas together. We had this framework for, this is an idea. Every idea sounds good when you have it, but then as you dig deeper into it, you realize, okay, no, it's, it's, a, it's not a good idea. It's a terrible idea. And when they pass these filters, you need external validation for like, is, does that make sense or not? And at that point, what we're doing is just talking to people, going to meeting, in-person meeting at that when it was still possible and just evicting ideas. And in November, when we applied to YC, that's when we had put the finger on. John had suffered from data integration in the past. I had done it as well while I was at Lyron, RideOS, FactSet. We're like, okay, every single company is doing the same thing over and over again. Can we fix it? And so that's when we applied to YC. And while we were at YC, we continued to do user interview. I think before you build a product, you need to really talk to people because 
you, what you have in your head is generally not enough. You need external input to understand that you're solving the right problems. But at YC, we just talked to 50 companies. And when we're at YC, we just refocus the idea to be more marketing oriented. And we build an initial product that got a ton of traction. It was before COVID and it was very marketing oriented, still like adjacent to data integration, but marketing oriented. And when COVID hit, actually, so what happened is a lot of companies actually removed the marketing budget. So the product that had a ton of traction, we started to not be able to move forward with deals. So that's when we realized with John that what we were building was more good to have than a need to have. And the, the pivot actually that we did was in July, we really recentered the goal of the company to be about data integration and more at the engineering, data engineering level, more than marketing. After July, we just went head down into Airbyte as people know it today. We released the first version uh, end of September. And since then, we had a, a huge, huge adoption. So very happy that we make that pivot. <laughs> but it was, I, I won't lie to you, it was hard <laughs> to make a pivot. <laughs> as I say, I think my, my daughter tells me that I might have gotten some gray hair that uh, at that time. <laughs> But it was better for the team. It was better for our investors to do that at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. I think you wrote this blog post called The Hard Things About Pivoting on your website, which I also read. And I'll be sure to put it in the show notes. You talk about like, how do you communicate the pivoting with the investors, with the team, and basically conclude that if you wait for too late, then it's bad, right? Even if it's a hard thing to do, you should do it as soon as possible and do it in a very transparent way, right? Exactly. And I think transparency is key here. When we decided that product we're building was not going to make it. We just directly talked about it to the team. We continued a little bit of development, but the mind and the brain of the team was now focused on, okay, let's refocus and find the next thing we need to build and the thing that people need. And we applied the same framework that we had done in the past, which is get in touch with 50, 100 people, companies, and talk to them about what problem that they are facing. The thing is, during our time at YC and during while we were also building that initial product, we discovered the problem that we're solving today. So it was just these six months that led us to Airbyte of talking to people, making mistakes and yeah. discovering problems. Yeah, for sure. You emphasize that importance of talking to as many prospects as possible, right? You know, during this pivot, you're kind of focused on data integration. You already mentioned like talking with these companies to understand their pain points. Did you like create a spreadsheet of potential head of data engineering at company X, company Y, and just send them co email and encourage them? What was the, the tactical strategy that you used to do all these uh, customer user interviews? That's a great question. And that's actually one of the amazing skills of John. We basically are automating some outreach where what we do is we list companies and then we try to figure out, okay, what are the roles? Then we extract these roles from like our people or employees that are in that company from LinkedIn and we start outreaching to them. The thing is the response rate is going to be low. So if you just have a list of 10 people, maybe one person is going to reply to you. So you need to go, when you want to do and conduct these interviews, you need to really have a large panel of people that you can reach out to because only a few percentage will actually convert. And so, yes, we are targeting companies, but internally we, are, we could be targeting multiple roles, whether it's a data engineer, senior data engineer, data analyst, like people that gravitate around data. But also it gives you a different perspective because data engineer is the producer. 
data analyst or data scientist are the consumer. So they have different problems and different perspective on the problem. So that's what we did. And we, we continue to do that. I think it's very important to always keep a foot into understanding what the market is needing right now and what they are doing to actually work around this whole in the product offering. So yeah, let's dig deeper into the core technical problem that EBA is addressing, which is to commoditize data integration pipelines, right? So would you mind explaining some of the pain points with existing data integration practices and the vision that EBA is moving towards? I think we're in a new age of data at that point where warehouses have actually enabled new roles to work with data. Before it was mostly data engineers, sometimes an analyst on a spreadsheet, but a lot of the work was on the data engineering side. And warehouses, and that's something I've seen at what I was at LiveRamp is, once you start opening that door of warehouses, suddenly you have tons of new people, tons of new roles and people that might have different objectives than you, or that might want to do some experiment. And if they are always blocked and bottleneck on engineering, you will never have this innovation coming in from them. So basically what we've seen is today, a lot of the data integration offering is not empowering these new roles. Warehouses are very popular, but there is still this missing link, which is how do you get data into warehouses? And you have some solution. You have like, you have Fivetran, you have Stitch, you have Matillion, but Fivetran and Stitch have friction, for example, in terms of data security, because they are a cloud-based service. So you need to, have your potentially your internal data to transit to someone else before going into your warehouse. So like for organic adoption of product, that's generally a problem. And some companies just don't want to get the data elsewhere than in their own infrastructure. And also what you have is so many different places where you can have data. And if you build 50 connector, that you might cover like 60% of the use cases, but you still have this 40%. And what we've discovered while talking with users and with other companies is every single company is building this 40% and they're all doing the same thing over and over again. They're going to build like a Stripe connector or they're going to be building like a Kafka connector somewhere, but they are all doing the same thing and they have to maintain it after that. And it's a huge drain for their engineering team. That's what is our goal is to really fix that problem is don't repeat building connectors and you share the load of maintaining these connectors with the community. And that's why we are taking this open source approach so that connectors become commoditized. They are free to everyone and everyone can add their connectors. And if this connector becomes popular, then you will get the community to help you maintain it. So you can share the burden. Yeah. You can customize it if you need to, instead of starting one from scratch. Yeah, thanks for sharing kind of the division that, that you uh, kind of see the hard data integration best practices going to look like in the upcoming years or so. Yeah, you already mentioned, you know, some of the challenges with building connectors. You actually have written a, a blog post on, on AI's website about your approach to view what is called a connector manufacturing plan, which essentially is to think in onion layers. Mm. So, can you unpack that analogy? Yep. So when you're thinking about data, and especially in the world of data integration is... You have data here and you want to get it, get it there. So basically you need to make sure that the data can transit. And what helps data transit is to have a protocol for exchanging data. And at that point, once you've built 
the protocol for building data. The protocol is going to be very low level. It will have some features, but it will be very costly to build against the protocol. It's going to generate a ton of code. If you need to address like 10,000 connectors, you don't want to write a ton of code for 10,000 connectors. So what you do instead is you start building abstraction on top of your protocol, but your protocol becomes your escape hatch in case there is an abstraction that cannot address a specific use case. You can always go down to the protocol. And what you do is you just build these layers and your goal is to really lower the amount of code that is necessary to build a connector because the less code you have, the easier the maintenance is going to be. It's also going to be, the abstraction can be tailored to one particular use case. So if you have synchronous API, you can create an abstraction just for that. And it means that now you can build a connector in two hours instead of taking three days. And by also building this framework, you can also build in features that make it easier to build. So retries, how do you handle error? How do you communicate with Airbytes? So it's really about building abstraction that can be specific to a like database, same thing. All our databases are being accessed the same way, but each one of them has some nuance. So if you can find the right abstraction, then suddenly you build it once, and then you can very quickly build 20 different inter database integrations. Mm -hmm. And the day this abstraction stops working, you create a new one that will allow you to address that particular family. And if you cannot do an abstraction, you can always go down to the root of your onion, which is the protocol, and you just build a raw integration at that point. In that blog post, which is dated back in October last year, you mentioned that, you know, I want to reach a rate of five connectors per day and accelerate even beyond that. Is that something that you guys have been pushing towards the rate of connectors? When we first released Airbyte, we had six connectors. Today, we are getting close to 60. One thing about connectors, it's a, what we call a thousand paper cut game, which is the first time you write a connector, it's going to work, but the scope to which it's work is going to be limited. And then as more people are using that connector, you're going to discover new use cases or things that you hadn't initially thought about when you implemented the connector the first time. And you are going to implement this thousand paper cuts into the connector. And that's going to make the, the connector way more robust, able to handle way more use cases or way more hedge cases. And that's what is important in connectors. So we continue to increase. We add new features to these connectors, support for incremental, support for primary keys and deduplication and things like that. But also we're spending time on building the infrastructure that allows us to manage these connectors. Like how can we test them? Make sure that if a service is down, we know about it. If a service is changing their API, we know about it and we can dispatch this information to the rest of the community so that if they, someone encounters a problem, they know where to look. So we're building on two sides here, connectors, making them more reliable and adding new connectors, but also like the infrastructure to manage them. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So EBA is an open source project, right? So you have written a little bit about a couple of the challenges that open source and commercial software face to solve the data integration problem. I definitely included that list in your show notes. It covers a lot of things, everything ranging from unique kind of cases to pricing model to security and privacy compliance. But you know, uh, in your opinion, what are some of the challenges that are still very hard for open source solution to address? I think it's really building the community because it's very hard for one single company to build connectors. 
and maintain them. You always have ROI considerations. So in an open source project, our thesis is the community is going to help build connectors and maintain them. And we're, we're seeing it today. So, but we need to make sure that we foster a good community and that we empower the community to make decisions on connectors and things like that, and that they get gathered under Airbyte. So I would say that's the biggest challenge. We need to make sure that the quality is there. But as I said, like the first one will be low quality, but then with iteration, it's going to become better and better. So making sure people trust the product, even when you have some connectors that start with low quality and make sure that people feel as they can contribute to make this connector better. Yeah, definitely. As we in this topic of open source strategy, at a high level, AI's future roadmap, which is being made public, include you know, support for batch ingestion, batch distribution from warehouse to third-party tools and enterprise features post-Series A. In general, like how do you prioritize product roadmap while developing an open source project? So it's both what we get from talking to people and also what kind of feedback we get from the community. That's one huge set of, one huge positive point of having and working with the community is you get access to the internal needs of companies, which are usually very, very hard to discover. And here, what we do is we prioritize based on yeah what we are thinking of what our product should look like, but also taking into account the needs of the community. So whether it's like prioritizing integration and, you know, sometimes one feature is going to enable a new person of our community because not everybody needs the same thing. But for example, we have people who just care about Salesforce or Stripe, but we have people who care about having CDC replication for database. And we see that these groups of people in our community are big. So the day we release that, suddenly they can use Airbyte in production. So I think that's really what we're looking for. Like what kind of feature can address all these different personas, prioritize based on that, based on what they ask us. You prioritize those with the highest amount of coverage and impact, right? Yeah. Let's take off your engineering head and put on your father head. Pricing an open source project is not an easy task. You have made public Airbus business model, which entail both self-hosted and, and hosted solution equivalent pricing for both of these options. So what pricing strategy that you think could be useful for open source creators looking to commercialize their projects? There are a few. One that is almost like a standard today is you have an open source solution and you do a hosted version of your product because open source depending on the, the profile of the company is great for just testing, but then they don't want to have to manage it. They want to use a hosted version. So that is one way of pricing your product. And at that point, it become, it can be volume-based, it can be feature-based. The other one is having an, an open core model, which is the base and the standard that you've created is always free. So the community edition. And every single feature that enhances the standard that you've created with the open source project becomes a paid feature. And instead of yeah, charging per volume, you charge per feature or you charge per consumption. So I'm going to be very transparent. We haven't figured out the pricing yet. <laughs> We're really focused on making becoming the standard with the community edition. And then we will fo focus on that. But the general idea is everything that is for one individual and beneficiate to one individual should be free. Everything that beneficiates to an organization or to a team should be something that you charge for. And that's how we've been approaching it and how we think about features. Yes, yeah, just out of curiosity, with, with any open source project out there, 
that you think that does an excellent job at both pricing strategy, in your opinion? I mean, I like how Mongo is doing it. I think they really nailed the open core model at that point. I like also how GitLab is doing it as well, where you can always use GitLab for free, but they really nail this concept of paying by feature, paying, and while still making the source code available and having this model where you can also host it on your own premise and on, or like on their, on their infrastructure. So addressing so many different sizes of companies, it's a great way, the way they've done it. You talk a little about some of the challenge of building communities for open source projects. You know, in general, like finding enthusiastic and passionate contributors is notoriously challenging for, for any of these projects. And um, just taking a look at, at the website of Airby, it seems like you have invested a lot of efforts in community engagement via writing tutorials, hosting community calls, hosting office hours, and even hosting like a connected contest, right? So what were some of the hurdles that you have overcome in order to find the early commuters? For every single project, there is a cost of onboarding someone. For us, it's not that hard because we've started the project, but for everybody new that comes into the project is how do you make the, the experience of contributing easy? That's what we call DX, developer experience. And initially it was really rough, and but we've invested in it. And it's a conscious decision on our side to very quickly on board. For example, we have like one-on-one sessions when someone wants to start. So we help them check out the project. We show them the different parts of the project, the different parts of the documentation that are relevant to what they want to do. But yeah, it's really about, we've put a lot of effort on DX and obviously it's taking time from us and from like continue to add more features. But at the same time, I think the community really likes that it's now becoming easier and easier to get into the project and to start contributing connectors. And over the months of March, we had 20% of, I mean, today we have 20% of the connectors that were contributed by the community. And many of them were done in March. And in February, we actually pushed a big change in improving DX. So we can really see the impact of changing DX, how it changes like the adoption of the project by the community of contributors. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Just another quick thought that popped into my mind is like, in order to measure the success of an open source project, the typical metrics that developers or an outsider look at is usually like the GitHub stars, right? But at the same time, it can be like a vanity matrix. I'm just curious, like, what are some of the success metrics that you use to measure the growth of AI? Yeah, so you're right. Like, stars is a vanity metrics, but it is also it plays a role in how much confidence you have in adopting a project. So it is an important metric. Now, the metric that we track internally is we track people who are testing us. And f- first of all, we try we track people who are deploying Airbyte, just running it. Then we track how many people are actually replicating data with Airbyte. And we track like how often do they replicate data? Are they replicating Sometimes they stop replicating and they come back two weeks later are like what we call test users where they like what we do. They believe in what we do, but we are not addressing their use case yet. So these are interesting to see them go back and forth trying Airbyte. And then the thing we're really optimizing for is like Airbyte deployments in production. So becoming part of the data stack of a team. And that's for us is our growth metric that we track a lot. And every time we get someone who is testing us, we try to get in touch with that person to understand like, what are your needs? 
what prevents you today from going to production. So we have like this flow to really understand what we need to build. And that's actually one of the signal we take when we prioritize projects, like what prevents people from using Airbyte in production and try to address these problems. Kind of going back to the importance of hiring, you know, we talked earlier in your conversation during your time at, at Lyram about, you know, finding and interviewing candidates who have this the right mindset of writing code with a purpose, essentially. Now, like in a, in a new role, hiring for Airbyte, which is sort of an early stage startup, right? And a completely different stage from when you got Lyram. What are some of the valuable lessons that you have learned in order to attract the right people who are excited about Airbyte's mission? There is always a risk when you hire someone because you might be hiring the wrong person that either is not going to deliver or person that is not going to be a fit to the culture you want to have in your company. And what I would recommend here is whenever you start a company is to try to hire people that you worked with in the past because basically you've already interviewed them while you were working with them. And that's what we've done. Like A lot of the people today at Airbyte are people that I've worked with or that John has worked with in the past. Mm-hmm. And... First of all, it makes the onboarding of people a lot easier because we already know each other and it removes a lot of the risk. Now, the cons of doing that is in general, especially in engineering, it's very biased. Like it doesn't have a lot of diversity in these networks. So you need to compensate that at some point to make sure that you create a diverse team. And that's when you need to start recruiting from the outside. And we started to do it. We have three people starting in April and May. So When we interview these people, what we're looking for is like this pillar, which is, will you be able to own the outcome of every single project? For for that, we ask questions about past projects, how they resolve conflicts or problems around this project, what were like unsuccessful projects and what have they learned from it? But it's really about digging very deep into every single answer that people give you, because it's easy to give like a shallow answer or generic answer. You want to really get into the details of how everything happened. I think... Every single engineer that we talked to have encountered that problem in the past. So it is not really a hard sell. <laughs> they really understand the pain that it is. And they are generally understand like why open source is the right solution for solving that problem. And at that point, it's done. I would say like having raised a large seed run also helps because people also are looking for some kind of stability. And we have different level of risk taking people. That has helped for sure. Yeah. Perfect. And that, you know, lends a well transition to my next question, right? Which is kind of about that fundraising. Ebay recently raised the Sutra led by Axel in March this year with participation from YC, FVC, and a couple other angel investors as well. And in fact, you guys have been very transparent about this whole fundraising process, even sharing the deck that you use to raise this round on your website. What fundraising advice could you give for founders who are seeking the right investors for the startups? So first of all, I would say talk to partners at VC firm that understand your industry. You don't want to be selling a calendar app to someone who does deep tech. You will be wasting your time. It's really about identifying who, which company gravitates in the same industry as you, find which partner was part of their seed or A or fundraising of their, their fundraising and get in touch with this partner. So usually like cold email don't work well. So try to find people who know them or that can lend you to that person. But it's really about staying really focused and really targeted on the right partners and the right firms. One thing that we've done a lot with John is we try to avoid taking like random meeting with VCs because it's a big energy drain. 
to have this type of meeting because it's very different from what you're doing day to day. So we try to really group them together. So if we decide that we have VCs that we really like and we want to keep them up to date, we're going to decide one week every quarter where we're going to have these calls. So this way you have the context in mind and you also become better at exposing the progress of your company. So I would say stay focused, try to batch these calls. And also you give the same data to everybody. That's helpful. Perfect. I think that's some great advice. And I'll be sure to include everything in the show notes as well. Just the kind of, especially the post that you wrote about like the process of raising it. Very interesting. And the fact that, you know, you also have a ton of angel investors, it seems that like even another approach, because naturally people think about like VC firms, but building this relationship with like practitioners, engineers, or past fathers who have done this before, it seems to be really useful in your context, right? To get their buy-in. Yeah. Angel investor is great because this, yeah, as you're saying, they generally know the industry well. You need to pick your angel investor based on like what their experience is and what they can help you on your journey to, to build a company. Yeah, Michelle, at this point of our conversation, I'm going to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and you can give um, you know, quick answers for the listeners. Number one, uh, name three people in the data engineering universe whose work you admire. I mean, my former CTO at Lyron, his name is Jeremy Litz. It's really, I think he's the one who really taught me how to interview people, how to bring the right people into your organization. And who really has this mentality of the more you empower people, the better they will become, the faster they will grow. And it creates this very innovative culture inside an organization. So, and yes, he was leading like the whole, all of the data and engineering organization at Lyron. So big fan of him. The other one would be the CEO of Fishtown, the maintainer of, of DBT. He really nailed a need. He's reading of how people need to work and what is the future of data analytics. And data is, is great. It's just, he figured out the right product at the right time that enables less technical people to be extremely, extremely efficient. Taking the open source approach also was great because you got the same advantage that we have, which is you get use cases from people. So very smart strategy here. Yeah, that's, uh, I only have two. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Yeah, I think I think the second person you just just in handy if I'm correct. Yep, correct. Yeah, he got like this great newsletter that I'm really following, so definitely highly recommend that for the listeners as well. Number two, name one book that you would recommend for engineers who want to cultivate an entrepreneurial mindset. Yeah, so I would say the High Growth Handbook from Elad Gill is a very good read because as engineers, we are generally very biased toward product, and I think. Product is important, you need to build it, but then you have to think also about distribution. You need to think about everything that goes around building a product and how you sell and in, in the end, build a company on top of a product. So I think it's a very good book because it is re- really addressed something that sometimes engineers are missing or some flavor that engineers are missing. So I would really recommend that book. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, there, there was this great tweet from... Uh... And Justin Khan said that first-time founders focus on products, second-time founders focus on distribution. And I think that really covers it well with what you know you already mentioned. Lastly, imagine that you send out a single tweet to all the early-stage data engineers on Twitter. What could you tweet about? The sentence I like to say is like, focus on extracting insights from data, not data. Because extracting data... It's hard. It's sometimes a repetitive job. It's a lot of maintenance and let other product do it for you. 
and just focus on getting the value out of the data more than getting the data. So Fabulous. focus on insights, not data. Yeah. Thanks, Michel. I think that's a brilliant way to end our conversation. So I really enjoy going through your career in our conversation today, just from your education back in France, studying ComSci and interest in, in database, your work in the financial organization back in Paris, your transition into working in, in the US, at Raplib, Laram, and then RIOS, and now some of the interesting work you're doing with AI, including you know the future of data integration, open source strategy, building a good business model, community engagement, hiring the right people and, and fundraising. And so I'll be sure to include everything into the show notes, including uh, some of the, you know, the GitHub things, Slack channels and content community that Eva has been putting out recently into the show notes. Hopefully listeners can take a look and then get engaged and can learn more about the future that their integration as they wish. So yeah, Michelle, I really appreciate you spending time with me this morning. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your week. Yeah, thank you very much, James, for having me. It was a great conversation. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.